Let's take up our Bibles today, and if you don't have one, uh, there are plenty in the back of the church. We'd like to provide you a Bible. As you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 26, let me welcome those who are uh, worshiping with us and ready for God's Word at their home or watching on a tablet. Uh, I FaceTimed with someone the other day driving in their car. They just had their phone set up, and we had a time of prayer. I thought that was interesting. But you're here for the Word of God, and we're so glad to have a ministry to those even beyond the ones that are gathered here. We still have plenty of space here in our uh, distancing, and we welcome you to come in person. We're glad you're attending to the Word of God. We're going to read the whole chapter again, which means I need you to pay good attention and follow the story and be ready for its exposition. From the English Standard Version, this is God's Word, inspired 1 Samuel chapter 26. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at the head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on top of the hill and with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? 
For, the, for one of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. And the, as the Lord lives, you deserve to die. Because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is? And the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? What have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men... May they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, And I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointing. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Thus far we read in the word of God. May he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey. Amen. Amen. How do you know if the Lord's at work in your life? How do you know and what assurance do you have that the Lord will bring you home to heaven? That he'll see you through all the twists and turns of this broken world? Oh, you say you have the promise of his word. Indeed, we can read his word and have those promises. And God makes promises. He who comes to me, I shall not ever lose. Yet faith is important in pursuing assurance that God will complete what he has begun. What we've been seeing in this Old Testament book is the faith of David, who's described as a man after God's own heart. And he had a promise from the Lord, a very special and unique promise, that he would be king. He had been anointed by the prophet of the Lord, and he was pursuing that calling, but everything seemed to be getting in the way. And Saul, once again, is hunting him. This is a a, a repeat. This is maybe a Groundhog Day experience for David. Saul is again hunting him. But David responds a little differently, for he has grown in his faith, 
And he displays his assurance, his sense that, yes, God will do for me what he has promised. His faith is not yet perfect. We'll see that. There are more chapters yet to read. But this is a turning point, and this episode is different than previously because David has learned, his faith has grown, and his assurance, well, let's just say it's rather audacious. Do you like that word? Audacious. That's a $5 word. You can take that one home. It means very bold, as in shockingly bold. You know, that's not just a good step. That, wow, wait, did you see that? Audacious assurance. David's faith is, is really driving him in this episode in a bold way. And you see, it's a little different than what you might expect. David, the warrior, do you remember the songs? David has killed his tens of thousands. David, the warrior who felled Goliath, is not being audacious with his ninja-like military skills. But David is a man after God's own heart and shows the audacity of his faith. You, you, you see how this unfolds. He's going into the camp, surrounded by the whole army. He's not just finding Saul in a cave. Whoa, what's this? He's walking into the enemy camp. There's an audacity to his faith and his assurance That's pretty hard to explain, but we're going to do our best to see what's going on here. Because we're not trying to simply be like David. We're trying to have faith in David's God as God enables us to do so. Well, first I want us to look at the lessons learned. The lessons learned. Have lessons been learned? And that's especially when something's repetitive, You remember, and and hopefully you do, just a couple chapters before, Saul was hunting David, and they had this encounter, and David stood over Saul and could have killed him, and didn't. It was a little different then. David struggled. And here, it shows that some lessons have been learned. You perhaps have heard the old Scottish proverb, the Italians claim it, but I think the Scots really started it. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. You can get the better of me or deceive me once, but I'll be wiser. I will learn. And if I'm fooled a second time, the shame is on me. David hears that Saul's coming after him. And and look, Saul has actually learned something. We see the Ziphites, and I'm sure the Bible scholars remember exactly who the Ziphites are. They're these people. um, I think Ziphite is ancient language for tattletales. Um, not, uh, but they want to tell on David, hey, king, king, he's over here. There he is. Come and get him. Last time in chapter 23, they told Saul, David's hiding in our backyard just past the, Saul said what? He said, well, you go make sure. Let me know when you have a little more data. And the king kind of sat on his hands. Now, Saul has kind of learned his lessons. As if I'd show up and say, he's hiding again right back here. We know the hill. Saul went. He get up and he got up and went. So Saul's learned something, hasn't he? See, strike while the iron's hot. David's not going to fool me twice. I'm going while I know where he is. But notice that Saul is going to kill the Lord's anointed. 
By his own lips, he had confessed that David was the anointed king to be, that the Lord was with David. But Saul has not learned the greater lesson. He's maybe learned the military lesson. He's maybe learned about prudence. But Saul, even even after his weeping and confessing, he's still old Saul, sinful and rebellious Saul. So some lessons have been learned, but not the most important lessons. David, on the other hand, has learned lessons. Do you remember back in chapter 23 uh, when uh, Saul was chasing him? Those Ziphites had given, <laughs> given the tip. <laughs> David's on the run. He's not hiding. He's on the run. And they're going around and around this hill. And in Samuel 23, Saul was on one side of the mountain and David and his men were on the other side of the mountain. David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. <sighs> Catch your breath. And then the text of Scripture says, And a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come away, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. A supernatural deliverance. And David stops running and sees that Saul's gone away. Something's distracted him, and his armies go somewhere else. He goes, Wow. I think likely he was praying for the Lord to deliver him. But what did he learn from chapter 23? He knows that the Lord can supernaturally deliver. That the Lord can strike when he wishes. And that's part of his theology here in verse 10 of our chapter. David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle. David knows that the Lord has a lot of ways of bringing deliverance. And David had further learned, not simply about the power of God, but also about God's mercy and restraint of David himself. In the very last chapter, when David ran into a foolish man called Nabal and his wife Abigail. Do you remember? We looked at it just last week. Uh, David uh, was there and he was angry and he was about to take his own action against Nabal and was stopped. And he was reminded that, yes, you are going to be king, as Abigail spoke to him, and the Lord can deal with this guy. And David learned, yes, indeed, the Lord will deal with my enemies, and the Lord will deal with me. And the Lord affirmed David's future. And that's behind his theology here in this new chapter, as he's explained to Abishai, what they are going to do as they stand over Saul. David said in verse 9 to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David understands that if you do the wrong thing, you're guilty. He had almost done the wrong thing and killed Nabal and all his house because of an insult. David's been learning, learning about himself learning about realities, learning that he did not have a blank check to do whatever he wanted, but he had to trust himself to a God who had sovereign resources to bring deliverance from unseen quarters. We talked at prayer meeting the other day about a a story I'd heard of of a very young boy. They found something growing on a bone in his body, and they checked it, and they said, oh, it doesn't look good. We'll send it out for tests, but 99% of the time, this type of growth on a bone is a deadly cancer. 
And the boy, the story on the podcast as I was listening, the boy in the church just started praying. And the boy said, Lord, let me be in the 1%. And a lot of people are smiling at him. That's pretty big faith. It seems like it's 99 to 1. And the results came back. And he came to prayer meeting with the results. He said, I got my 1%. And the boy's testimony is, is encouraging so many. You never know how the Lord can and might deliver. He doesn't have to do it your way. And he still holds you accountable to do what is right and trust him. So David's learned a lot about the Lord. David has learned a lot about himself. David's conclusion is that Jehovah can be trusted to handle both fools and oppressors and me. Have we learned that? Have we learned that? Do we know that? Let's secondly ask this question. Who's keeping watch in this story? Back to chapter 26 now. We're, we, we've seen the, the story unfold as it was read. David and his uh, nephew, actually, it's the son of one of his sisters. David had older brothers and sisters. And a lot of them older. So actually this nephew is about his same age. So Abishai is actually his, his nephew. And they're going off and they're standing over Saul. And there is a dialogue there. There's a dialogue throughout this narrative chapter of Scripture, and it tells us something. Uh, the question of who's watching over who. And it first piqued my curiosity because David, when he finishes this little mission, he stands up and he doesn't call to Saul. Did you notice that? That's different this time. He's not going straight at Saul. He's speaking to Abner, the commander of the Lord's armies, the joint chiefs of staff, the big hero of the army, Abner. He'll, he'll be in the story later on as well. And he says to Abner, uh, you, you've done a poor job here. You're the bodyguard, but look, I got the spear, I got the canteen, and they were right next to the king. Who was watching the king? Saul was apparently defenseless. As David uh, taunts, who are you? Uh, are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Come on, you're capable, but why haven't you, verse 15, kept watch over your Lord the king? Someone came to destroy the king, your Lord. It's not good. And David says, by taking a solemn vow, as the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. The question of who's watching who seems to be important. And David brings it up because David, I think here, is also trying to be instructive And I don't want to spill the beans, but I think by the end of this chapter, we see the makings of a new king. David is really growing into the position. He's beginning to deal with others and teach others what he has learned about, not just about himself, but about the Lord and about the way things should work. You shouldn't be hunting the Lord's anointed, Saul. But he begins by talking about those who should protect Saul, who's the current king. Who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? So Saul is apparently defenseless. And David raises the question. Saul, you're you're trusting this guy to protect you and he's not protecting you. Who's protecting the Lord's anointed? And obviously David didn't kill Saul. 
But that's because David fears the Lord. The Lord was protecting Saul. David raises this question about who's keeping watch because he wants Abner and Saul and you and me to ask the question, who's looking over us? Who's watching over us? Who's protecting us? It's another startling moment. You've got my spear and my canteen. That was right here. And how did you get that? And you realize how close you came to death. And Abner realizes uh, how he deserves death for failing to guard. David raises those questions. Who's keeping watch and who do you trust? And all the while, David has this sense that the Lord is watching over him. We're told by the narrator that David was able to make it into the camp and stand over Saul, not because he's some ninja or whatever the appropriate term is, special forces, I don't know. It wasn't because of his military acumen. It was because the Lord had caused a deep sleep to fall upon the people. That's what the narrator tells us in verse 12. They were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Does David know this in advance? That's what I wanted to know. I get to that. Oh, that's how we got in there. It's not like the G.I. Joe technology. It was faith in God technology. But did David know that he could just walk right in? I don't think he did. I think he was venturing forth confident that his life had the protection of God and that he, he had an opportunity to uh, probe his enemy. And as he probes, he gets close. As he gets close, his audacious, audacious assurance kicks in and he goes and stands right over Saul. And he's, he's just only more and more confirmed that the Lord's hand is upon him. David was supernaturally kept safe and he begins to understand it. But he begins by walking by faith. How does David come to have a faith against such great odds? How can he have a faith that faces an army? Well, I could answer that by taking you back to David and Goliath. How did David face Goliath? You remember David had experience it around. The Lord gave me help. And in doing my job as a shepherd, I could beat off the bears and the lions. This is a threat. God can help me here. David drew on his experience. And so by faith in the Lord, he fights the Lord's battles. David also had been instructed of the Lord. I'm sure that spending time with Jonathan, his bosom buddy, that he had learned of Jonathan's great faith and Jonathan's putting that faith into practice. It's been a while since we were in chapter 14, but I hope you took note and maybe underline chapter 14, verse 6. Take a look, if you still have your Bibles open. Chapter 14, verse 6. Jonathan makes a theological declaration. Remember, Jonathan was the prince, and he was trying to fight the Lord's enemies. Saul was staying home. Jonathan's going out, and he's going to go over and engage the enemy. But all he had was his armor bearer. <laughs> it's like two against 200. Or maybe 25. I don't know how many were in that other unit. But in verse 6, chapter 14, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, not even another soldier, but a helper, come, let us go over to the garrison of, garrison of these uncircumcised. May it be that the, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. You're listening to the voice of faith. 
Faith that God can save by many or by few. He can do it. It may be his will that we perish in our efforts. We don't know and we can't demand of the Lord protection in every situation as we see it. But he believed what the Lord was able to do. And Jonathan succeeded in that venture. You have to realize Jonathan and David are not just good friends, heartfelt buddies, but they have both a heartfelt faith in Jehovah, the God of Israel. David shared that, and I'm sure that was the faith that had grown and matured, that had been fed some lessons that makes David as bold as he is, audacious as he is. And later on in in our main text today, chapter 26, verse 24, David's giving a little testimony as he speaks with Saul, and he knew that his hope and trust was in the Lord then, and even as he speaks with Saul, that he is supernaturally kept safe. David said, Behold, verse 24, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, that's Jehovah, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. David was supernaturally kept safe and he kept faith in the Lord. Now, I do want to say an important footnote, especially for the kids who want to go out there and be just like David. David had assurance of supernatural deliverances many times. And he had a word from the Lord that, yes, you will be the king. You will wear the crown. We don't have a a supernatural promise that we will grow up to be president or we will grow up to have our own business or have seven kids. We don't have those promises explicitly. But we do have the same God as David. So we can exercise the same faith. We can put our trust in a God who is capable, who is powerful, who is resourceful beyond our imagination. And he is keeping watch. Remember, that's the question here. David is making plain. And there's one more thing before we move on about keeping watch. Who's keeping watch? I would assert to you that in one sense, David is now keeping watch over Saul. What? Yes, David's on the run. He's in the wilderness. Saul wears the crown. Saul has the army. But David, in a sense, is keeping watch over Saul. Why would we say that? Well, let's see what we have here in the text. Um, When Saul makes his confession in verse 21, remember, Saul said, I have sinned. Return my son, David. He uses all the son language. Notice that David doesn't use the father language anymore for Saul. The roles are reversed because David's the watcher, not the dependent. Saul says, I've sinned, return my son David, I will do, no, do you no harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I've acted foolishly, made a great mistake. Saul understands that David stood over him, looked at him, and was watching over him. And Saul's hearing that dialogue with Abner. It sounds like David is concerned for the life of the king. Abner, you didn't guard the king. David is stepping into the role of a real king who guards the people of God, who watches over the servants of God. David has begun looking beyond himself. I I think that's here in the text. We're beginning to see David emerge. He's not yet perfect, and his faith has its 
faults. But here, this is different than the cave. This is different than even with Nabal in that battle. David has grown, and he's watching over Saul. He exercises carefulness over others. That's what the spiritually mature do. Maybe you heard that in my pastoral prayer. Even as I prayed for young believers, I prayed for older believers. And older believers, we have more to do. We need to be exercising oversight and help, and there's a ministry in that. And it doesn't necessarily connect with age. You can be a mature, giving believer at a variety of ages. But also, one other thing about David and his kingly development I want to show you here in the text. It's in verse 22. Saul is kind of weepy-eyed and calling David son. And he says, oh, I've been a fool. You're so good. And what does David say right after all that in verse 22? Notice how he says it as well. And David answered and said, here's the spear, O king. Let one of your young men come over and take it. Saul had just been weeping. Oh, I'm some foolish. Come and trust me, David. I will take, I won't raise my... Here's the spear. Come and take it. David, I think the text is clearly saying David is acting kingly. And he says, here's the spear. David is, is not buying this new wave of tears. David's become more discerning. I'm not going to be fooled twice. I'm not going to entrust myself to you. And I'm going to return this symbol of power to you, Saul. It's a thing that you clutched and clung to. It's your symbol of power, your spear. Even as you've gotten older, the spear that you threw at me, I'm going to give it back to you because I don't need it. I have the Lord who watches over me. You may cling to this spear. The Lord watches over me. And indeed, I will even watch over you and hold your life precious. I don't need it. Here it is. Send someone to fetch it. Do we see the transformation of David? What's gotten into him? Well, his faith has grown and his assurance is very strong. And I think there's an application here for us. Let's pause and make it. The application is this. When you are in a culture that seems to have all the the symbols of power arrayed against you, if you have the Lord on your side, who can deter you? Is the Lord on your side? Do you remember the words of David, excuse me, of Paul in writing to the Romans? He said, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I can almost see that and the caption under David saying, here's the sword, take it back. If God is for me, who can be against me? That's the voice of David who is God-fearing, who has faith in God, and trusts God. Believer, does your faith look anything like that? Or do you barter with the world? Do you say, oh, I've got the sword now. I'm going to use the sword against my enemies. Well, Paul had something to say about that as well. He says to the Corinthians, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal are not these bows and arrows of the culture. The weapons of the Christian's warfare are spiritual and mighty for pulling down strongholds. Christians in America, 
Stop playing the political games and waving those flags and trying to maneuver for power. If God is for us, who can be against us? And our agenda needs to be God's agenda. The advancement of his kingdom. David shows us what a robust faith looks like when it's functioning properly. God's not calling us to confront the king. God may not be calling you to give speeches. But God wants you to trust him and walk by faith to do what he calls you to do. To say no to sin. To say yes to opportunities to serve. To take up your cross and to lay it down in his cause. Let me show you a little bit more. If we have just another minute or two, another heading here. What seems to matter most to David and Saul in this passage? What seems to matter most? And the text raises this question as well. Because David, in speaking to Saul, not only defends himself and says, Saul, stop listening to those who poison you against me. Those worm tongues who tell you that I'm out to kill you. I'm obviously not out to kill you. But David says more here. What is David's concerns? Let's go to verses 18 and 19. And I've got to leave Romans and go back to Samuel. As David speaks to Saul, he says, uh, uh, verse 19, Now therefore, my lord the king, hear the words of his servants. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, David's aware that it's possible that the Lord is doing something in David's life through these hardships. And yes, God is doing something through the hardships. But this is what he says. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. In other words, David's willing to live under God's chastisement. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. What was the effect of Saul's chasing David? Of Saul's listening to these men who have poisoned him against David? David is on the run. David doesn't get to hang out at Shiloh. David doesn't get to visit the prophets. And now Samuel's dead. In fact, David was driven away to Philistine cities. And and in the next chapter, he'll, he'll, he'll be off somewhere else among the Philistines. David has been kept away from the help of God's people. By being on the run. Yes, he has found the Lord in the wilderness. God has met him and sustained him. But David's greatest concern, according to verse 19, is I have no share in the heritage of the Lord. That's a powerful word. The heritage of the Lord. What does it mean? I'll tell you this. You find it all through the Psalms. You find it in many places. For instance, in Psalm 33, verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. To be with God's people is to be a part of God's heritage. The word is very similar to a cousin word, inheritance. We usually think inheritance, we think material things. Heritage is the blessings of the tradition and the current uh, presence of all those relationships. It's like be, belonging in the community. 
earlier when Samuel had anointed Saul to be king, there was that phrase back in chapter 10, uh, this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be a prince over his heritage. So David's concern is you're going to pull me away. You keep pushing me away from the people of God. I don't have the koinonia I would like to have. I don't have access to the spiritual gifts of God's people and the comforts of belonging, true belonging, and the benefits of fellowship David was losing out on. And that was his concern, especially as he grew in faith. It's sometimes hard to know, do I have a sense of belonging? Perhaps you watched the big funeral yesterday, Prince uh, uh, Philip. The consort to Queen Elizabeth was buried. And one of the sub-stories in the media was yakking and yakking about the soap opera story, but I think it illustrates the point here. Prince Harry, who had walked away from the royal family, living here in America, married to an, uh, a, a famous person, he went back for the, for the funeral. And the media is asking, will he be accepted? Will his family let him belong? Will he be able to stand close? Will he like his brother? The whole question of belonging came up. And everybody was hoping that he would be able to belong. Who, who would not want to be able to have the, the comfort and solace of family? To see your grandmother in her grief. To see your dad. To see your brother, your cousins. David's concern in this chapter in the Bible is that the pursuit of this evil man was keeping him from fellowship with the people of God. So I want to point out that's what true faith longs for. If you have faith in the Lord and you're trying to walk and be robust in your service and fearlessness for the Lord, do you also care to be among God's people? That was big on this heart of David. I need to be with the people. I'm not made to be on the run, to be a lone ranger. And it, it actually points to the nature of salvation. There's no salvation apart from the Lord. David says, I want to have this heritage with the Lord. I need him and his people. And when you get to the last chapter, nearly the last chapter of the Bible, in Revelation 21, there's a passage there where the Lord himself is speaking about making all things new. And he said, it, uh, he said this, Revelation 21, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. This heritage is not just about fellowship and getting to go to the church functions. This heritage is about the quality of a relationship with God and being known as a son of God. It's a big concern that David has. He's not just fighting to get rid of Saul and to get rid of his problems. He's fighting that he might have all the blessings that God has to offer from himself and through his people. I, I don't think most Christians weigh these things. And perhaps COVID has, has changed that. And I really pray that COVID has changed that. In being unable to worship for several weeks, that was a, a heartache for me. If it wasn't a heartache for you, 
Do you care about the heritage of being the Lord's? Even today, some are growing, sorry folks at home, some are growing comfortable at home. And and even though they're able to come back, they're not coming back. That's what pastors are reporting. Many are coming to church and we're thankful for that. Some wisely need to stay home for now or legally have to stay away. I understand that. But if your heart is grown comfortable apart from the heritage of the Lord, that's a grave concern. And we'll keep praying that no one falls away. Well, what mattered most to Saul, we'll only mention in passing. Uh, He looks like he's crying here. He says, I've made mistakes. You know what Saul's filled with, boys and girls? Saul's filled with regret. And regret is not the same as repentance. They both start with the letter R, right? Regret and repentance. Repentance means I'm wrong and you turn. I'm not going to do it again. I'm going to do what's right. That's what repentance means, a turning. Repent, turn. Regret is just, oh, I really messed up. This has made my life so much harder. And he's crying, David, my son, can't, we, can't you come and let me still be the father figure? No. David's wearing the king's pants now. Take your spear, go home. We'll wait on the Lord. Saul's concerns are regret. But oddly, we can't miss this. At the very end, Saul says to David, the last time these two ever meet, Saul will die down the road, but they will never meet again or talk. What does Saul do? Saul said to David, bless you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. In a really odd moment, Saul is still using the son-father language. David's not. But Saul, as it were, gives a father's blessing to David. And when you're the king and you bless a son, you're really, in effect, anointing him, as it were, to be the next king. Very confusing. It makes me think of someone like Judas who follows and tries to help Jesus but works against Jesus at the same time. A divided heart, not a single-minded heart. A divided heart. But David makes it plain at the end. What's the end of David here in verse 23? He says, The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. He says, it's up to God to give the blessings. It's up to God to give the promotions, and it's up to God to give the demotions, and he looks on the heart. So what matters most to David is belonging to the Lord and having the Lord look on his heart. In closing, I want to leave you with three points of application, and uh, let me give them to you now. The first we've just been talking about, our faith should long for the heritage of the Lord. Our faith should long to be with God and his people. Your faith was not made for you to be a lone ranger. Okay, John Wayne is not the model for our faith. Our faith should long for the heritage of the Lord. Secondly, 
We trust and obey God by faith. Even when we're unsure of his plans. Or unsure of how God will accomplish his plans. We, we should know, we do know something about the plan of God, the purpose of God, the goals of God. Scripture tells us. But we don't always know how God's going to get there. God has several ways to get there. David made that clear. He says, I don't have to kill Saul. Abishai, no, don't touch him. I don't have to kill him. You don't have to kill him because God could do it. God could do it this way. God could do it that way. Or any way that I can't even think of to list. David wanted to trust and obey God by faith, even as he's unsure of God's methods or next steps. And that's the nature of faith. Your faith is in the person of God, not your knowledge of the future. We don't know what the future holds. We only know that today is the day to serve the Lord, to take that next step by faith. God's word is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. God gives us wisdom and help. But the Christian life is one step at a time by faith. And God knows the future. I think it was Dale Davis said, God's ways will frequently baffle us. But God's will is sufficiently clear to lead us in the meantime. God's ways may not be clear, but our way is at least enough of it to know what obedience requires. We may not know what God's next step is, but we should know how God wants us to walk. And finally, from the prayer of David here at the very end, where he casts himself on the Lord's care, Our hope should not be in God changing our circumstances or changing our enemies. But our hope should be in God. Do you remember David's language from verse 24 here? Uh, Behold, as your life was precious in my sight this day, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. David is saying, Saul, I really hope you change, because then I can come home and my life will be in your hands. No, David is saying... I don't know what you're going to do next, Saul. I'm not even going to call you father anymore because my hope is in the Lord. I'm not waiting for the Lord to change my circumstances or to remove my enemies, but to keep my faith in him. It reminds me of what Paul wrote to the Romans. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8 goes on to say this as well with this great climax. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He lists all the circumstances. They shall not separate us from the love of God. No, in all these things, we who believe in the Lord and walk by faith, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, Paul writes, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our hope is not in 
changing circumstances. David is not going to sit on the throne at the end of the chapter. But his trust in the Lord was alive and well. My friends, may God bless his word to each of us. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we so admire the the strength and the audacious behavior of David, the faithful one. We want to be like that. We want to serve you boldly. Oh, Father, strengthen our faith. Help our unbelief. May we act clearly where your word is clear and trust you where we do not yet know your will. Father, may we put our faith in Christ and trust in his finished work to see us safely home. We thank you for this word today. Bless it to all who hear it and believe it and obey it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.